Welcome to Oncofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Oncofarm. It is November 5th, 2020 uh, here in the States. As you can tell, I've got a little bit of a stuffy nose. Uh, it's been a long week. Uh, kids have been home from school with colds. Uh, we know they're colds. We got the COVID test, came back negative. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it's what a week, right? Uh, so today I want to talk about Bellini, uh, which is a publication that came out uh, last week. It's venetoclaxer placebo uh, with bortezomib, Velcade, uh, and dexmedazone and relapse refractory multiple myeloma, a phase 3 randomized controlled trial. This was published in Lancet Oncology October 29th, uh, which was, uh, I think, exactly a week ago, but feels like a month ago. Um, anyway, Bellini, uh, I don't think this is named after the drink, which is a combination of Prosecco and peach puree, which in the summer would sound delightful, uh, but probably after Giovanni Bellini, a uh, Venetian Renaissance painter, uh, late 1400s, early 1500s. Um, just because it's named after him, I did a, a little brief art history research, uh, and uh, just from paintings I've seen from that period, uh, it sticks with uh, you know a lot of... Uh, early Christian imagery and painting, very biblical, uh, but much more colorful. There's some bright blues and some bright reds, a little, a little more pleasing to the eye, and apparently uh, that's why uh, Bellini was uh, a notable painter uh, and I guess worthy of uh, being honored in this clinical trial. Now, uh, the name Bellini, uh, unless you're into uh, the cocktail or the art uh, may ring a bell because the FDA put a hold on this study in, in accruing patients in March of 2019 due to increased mortality. Uh, and we'll talk about that. Um, but before Bellini, let's go back to a phase one study uh, in blood by Kumar and colleagues published uh, in blood in November of 2017. Uh, and the, this is an efficacy of anetoclax as targeted therapy for relapse refractory translocation 1114 multiple myeloma. A couple things here. If you're doing a phase one study, you can't title the publication efficacy. A phase one study should be a dose-finding study, which is what they did in this study. Um, uh, they actually took patients um, and uh, they started them at, at low doses and uh, as tolerated, actually escalated the dose up to 1,200 milligrams a day in the study. Uh, and they said there was no maximally tolerated dose uh, at 1,200 milligrams a day. That was just, for the most part, single agent therapy, although they could add some other stuff there. Uh, as we'll we'll talk about, but let's talk about translocation 1114. This is a, um, a cytogenetic abnormality in myeloma that is considered standard risk. It's present in about 15 to 20 percent of patients with myeloma. Uh, so chromosome 14 is location of the immune globulin heavy gene. Uh, so it makes sense why this would be an area of uh, common alteration in myeloma, which again is a plasma cell disorder. Plasma cells are just you, you know antibody and antibody machines, and uh, the myeloma cells are bad antibody machines. Um, so there are a couple other uh, chromosome 14 translocations. There's 414, 1416, and 1420. Those are considered high risk. Translocation 1114 is considered standard risk. And in uh, in vitro studies of myeloma cell lines and even some human cells uh, taken from patients, uh, I think is the way I read this, um, they found uh, or they identified an increased ratio of BCL2 
to other anti-apoptotic proteins. So in many cancers, there's an upregulation of BCL2 that basically allows the, the cancer cell, in this case a myeloma cell, to be somewhat resistant or more resistant to apoptosis, which we would like cancer cells to die on their own, right? Uh, so venetoclax binds to BCL2, uh, shifts the balance in favor of the pro-apoptotic proteins and allows uh, these cancer cells to die. So this phase one study uh, had 66 patients. 30 of them had translocation 1114, uh, and 36 did not. Now this is not representative of the myeloma patient population. You know, I mentioned that you would expect maybe 15% Translocation 1114, not 50%. So this is kind of like uh, doing an exit poll in a very, you know, well-off suburban area. It's not going to be representative of the whole vote in that county or that state or whatever, that nation, okay? Well, the reason I mentioned this 11, translocation 1114, this phase one study, is that the objective response rate, which is looking at partial response and very good partial response or better, was 40% in the patients who had translocation 1114 versus 5.5% in those that didn't. So we're talking only 14 patients total that had a response, but of the 14 that had a response, 12 had translocation 1114. Um, so uh, certainly suggestive that venetoclax is an attractive target for these people with translocation 1114. Now, you can't take a whole lot from the efficacy. It's a phase one study. There's a lot of different types of people. It's a very heterogeneous patient population. Uh, again, it's kind of like looking at an exit poll. Well, this brings us to Bellini, uh, which again, phase three study, 300 patients randomized two to one to either venetoclax 800 milligrams a day, pretty healthy dose there, um, plus bortezomib and dexmethasone, uh, or placebo plus bortezomib and dexmethasone. So, so two to one, two to venetoclax, one to placebo. Now the primary endpoint is progression-free survival. And this is important because we know progression-free survival is a surrogate endpoint. So to use an analogy that we're thinking about, uh, it's kind of like a poll of likely voters. Who will you vote for is a surrogate endpoint for who you actually voted for, which is kind of what we'd want to see. A little bit about these, a little under 300 patients. Only 46% of them had had one line of treatment or more. Okay, so they, they were relapsed, but they weren't heavily pretreated. So 53% or so had received two or three lines of treatment. Uh, but it's not like, uh, you know, the phase one study I referenced above, I think the median uh, prior lines of treatment was five. So these were not that heavily pretreated myeloma patients. 30% were proteasome naive. So they had not received 30%, seems like a small number, had not received bortezomib in the past. 60% did have a prior transplant. And... Um, 40% were exposed to both an IMBIT and a PI. Uh, so this is not the typical U.S. myeloma patient population who would have relapsed, say, after uh, VRD, Velcade, or Bortezomib, plus lenalidomide and dexmethasone. Uh, and the percentage of folks with translocation 1114 was lower here, only 10 to 15, 10 and 15% respectively. So it was not enriched with this translocation 814 or 1114, like the first study. We'll come back to why the translocation 1114 subgroup may be meaningful here. All right, so I mentioned the primary endpoint is progression-free survival, and lo and behold, there is better progression-free survival in the venoclax arm. So the median progression-free survival was 22.4 months versus 11.5 months in placebo. It's almost a doubling of PFS, and in fact, the hazard ratio is 0.63, p-value is 0 0.01. Uh, if you look at the uh, Kaplan-Meier curves for progression-free survival. They're parallel for nine months, no difference. And then you start to see the bortezomib group drift downward, suggesting, as we'll see, that those were mostly progression events. However, 
Uh, and again, progression-free survival should be a surrogate marker for overall survival. So you would expect if fewer people are progressing or dying, that fewer people are actually dying. It's not the case in Bellini. And uh, I love the way they wrote this. Quote, an increased proportion of overall survival events uh, and the intent to treat analysis, intent to treat arm were observed in, venetic, in the venetic lax group. Um, an increased proportion of overall survival events is a very fancy way of saying more death. And I guess it sounds better. So 21% of people in the venetoclax arm had died, so one-fifth died of venetoclax versus only 11%, or say one in 10, in the placebo arm. So twice as much death. In fact, that, that hazard ratio for death was 2.03. So two times as many people died on average or had a risk of death on average in the venetoclax group. That has, or that confidence interval, 95% confidence interval, is 1.04 to 3.95, fairly wide. Doesn't cross one, but fairly wide. That p-value is 0.034. Sounds like it'd be significant, right? But this is an inter the first interim analysis looking at overall survival, and their O'Brien-Fleming stopping boundary was a p-value of 0 0.004. So we need another zero in there uh, before another magnitude in their log benefit or log reduction. Uh, that's not the right term. You need another zero in there, uh, an uh, another layer of certainty uh, to actually stop the study, which means the study was able to restart after the FDA put a hold on it. Uh, and of course, the increased reason for death was assumed to be due to infection. I think uh, something like uh, many of these folks in the venetoclax arm died from infection. And we do see greater neutropenia, of course, in the venetoclax arm. So the protocol to this study was amended in March of 2019 after the FDA put a hold on it. And the amendments were patients were required, mandated is the term they use in the, the paper, mandated to have antibacterial prophylaxis, which the, the appendix tells you is levofloxacin, and pneumocystis gervicii pneumonia, or PJP prophylaxis, with something like with Bactrim. Um, before that was that prophylaxis, say for levofloxacin and Bactrim, were left to the investigator's discretion, it was then mandated. So you see what they did there. Pe more people were dying, so they mandated a safety measure to protect the safety of the population in their study, which makes perfect sense to me. Um, all patients, by the way, uh, were required to have the standard antiviral prophylaxis we see with bortezomib, like with acyclovir, valacyclovir, as well as influenza vaccination and pneumococcal vaccination. Um, so just, well, we'll come back to that. Um, so big change in safety happened, and they could start reoccurring patients. That hold on accrual in, in the U.S. was lifted, uh, I think, in June of 2019 or July. So, so sometime in that summer it was lifted. So we'll see, hopefully going forward with that second analysis, um, if the added safety measures prevented the excess death from venetoclax. Um, but as it looks now, there's no, there's no overall survival benefit for venetoclax here. Certainly, in fact, it's the opposite. More people died. Still early on, um, perhaps with added safety precautions, we will see uh, a safe use of this drug. Um, the... Uh, you know, and this is, uh, you know, reminiscent of the, the podcast we did a few months ago about lilamide and high-dose dex versus lilamide and low-dose dex, where you saw superior surrogate marker endpoints for the more toxic regimen, the high-dose dex group. And we saw more responses here as well with Benaclax, uh 9 um, versus 3%. I think it was, yeah. So, you know, quite a bit more response in the Benaclax 19 versus 3%, 9% versus 3%. Gosh, you know, I'm going on no sleep here lately with everything going on. So just permit me 
Yes, 19% versus 3%. So a pretty, pretty big difference, uh, at least in disease activity in the Vendiclax group. Um, now, the reason that we talked about translocation 1114 before is when you look at the forest plot and the subgroup analyses, one of them jumps off the page, and that's the, that's the translocation 1114 subgroup. Now remember, there are only 10 and 15 patients in each arm respectively, so this was a very, even a lower um, percentage of patients with translocation 1114 than you would expect in a general myeloma population. Uh, but, you know, the, the hazard ratio for progression-free survival was 0 0.11 very low hazard ratio, and then a, a trend towards improving overall survival, of course, very early in the disease. Median follow-up was 18 months uh, for these folks. Um, you know, it's only a subgroup, so uh, only 35 patients, so it's, um, you know, you, you can't take a lot from that. Very suggestive of benefit in that, and um, the reason that we're talking about this is we are going to see prescribers use venetoclax in this translocation 1114 patient population. I guarantee that we'll see that in community practices. Uh, there'll be more studies uh, in academic practices doing this. There are a lot, a lot of supportive care measures that we need to be on the lookout for. I didn't even mention the dose reductions uh, like for azole antifungals and maybe things like and moderate 3 or 4 inhibitors with venetoclax that of course would lead to more neutropenia and more infection risk. But there is the antibacterial prophylaxis. They use levofloxacin here. Probably use something uh, similar uh, in the community, um, depending on what your resistance rates are to fluoroquinolones where you are. Uh, PJP prophylaxis, either with Bactrim or, you know, if they have a, a sulfur allergy, perhaps Dabsone or inhaled pentamidine. Uh, and then being vigilant, the antiviral prophylaxis, of course, and being vigilant about staying up to date on immunizations uh, with influenza and, uh, and pneumococcal. Um, uh, now we're in a pandemic with an infectious disease. Uh, so uh, all of those things uh, must be considered uh, when you're looking at using venetoclax in this subgroup of patients with translocation 14 uh, or 1114 in myeloma. So that's Bellini. Um, it's time to get off here. Time to, to refresh uh, my, my web browser to see if there are any new results. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, follow me on Twitter at and Follow the podcast. Uh, on both Twitter and Instagram at Oncofarm Pod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.